Indonesia defense upgrades, Biden's trip to Vietnam, and Malaysia's 66th Independence Day. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jafet Kitsan, and today is September 7th, 2023. On today's show... At least for the moment, the federal government, the unity government at federal level, is stable and is expected to see out the term, and that's how I see it. I think even though there were a lot of disappointments in the results, especially in Selangor and some of the other states, ultimately a 3-3 draw, where ultimately was a status quo at the top line, that bodes well for stability. That was Sharil Hamdan, who chatted with Greg Poling and Alina Noor to discuss the recent state elections in Malaysia. Looking forward to that interview. It should be exciting. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Camille Bismonte in the studio, a former Southeast Asia program intern who is currently an international program specialist for the Asia-Pacific team at the Department of Commerce's Commercial Law Development Program. Camille, so glad to have you back for today. Hi, Jaffet. Happy to be here. You know, both of our current interns also studied abroad in Indonesia, just like you. Yeah, it's really exciting to see how their passion for Southeast Asia gets channeled into this program as well. It really is, and we're all better off for it. We have to talk about the fact that Indonesia has ramped up its defense capabilities recently. Did you hear about the Operation Super Garuda Shield? Yeah, of course. It's the joint military drill that's led by Indonesia and the U.S. This time, there are more countries participating, like the Philippines, Brunei, Timor-Leste, Papua New Guinea, and many more. Some folks say it's because of the recent drama in the South China Sea. Uh Uh-oh. I mean, this all makes sense, especially with how it's really stepped up its defense game recently. Indonesia is really in its defense modernization era. What do you mean? Well, recently, Indonesia started developing the Natuna Islands to accommodate large seafood vessels, as well as its military capabilities. Right. It recently opened a military base there, right? Not only that, but an airport, too. The Ranai Airport that was built on Natuna Besar serves both the people and the military. The Natuna Islands are the center of tensions between Indonesia and China regarding territorial claims, so I'm not surprised to see that they're increasing their defense significantly. Territorial disputes in this region are unlikely to go away anytime soon. Last week, China released new maps claiming most of the South China Sea. These new maps got a lot of negative responses from India, Taiwan, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Hmm. Strong stances from a whole lot of ASEAN countries in particular. Yeah, but speaking of ASEAN, the ASEAN summit is supposed to happen soon, which brings leaders from the region together, alongside others from outside the region. But you know who isn't going? President Joe Biden. No. I did hear about this, though, because Biden's going to the G20 summit in India. He'll be sending VP Harris instead. I know that Biden is planning to go to Vietnam afterwards. He wants to promote the growth of technology and innovation in the Vietnamese economy, expand educational exchanges, and most importantly, change the relationship to a partnership. Great to hear it. Though some feel that the snub means that the U.S. isn't really taking its partnerships in ASEAN seriously. Yeah, and some diplomats did say they saw that as a significant disappointment. But wait, back to Vietnam. You said they're upgrading the relationship? Yeah, the visit to Vietnam is possibly one of the biggest stories in terms of U.S.-ASEAN relationships lately. Definitely interesting to see. I feel like this all might be a good indication of how Washington is choosing to approach its top foreign policy agenda item, a rising China. That's a possibility for sure. Vietnam shares a border with China, and ASEAN hasn't historically been a defense bloc, so it makes sense how the U.S. might prioritize individual relationships like that. 
Biden's visit to Vietnam has been months in the making. In March, the chief of Vietnam's ruling Communist Party called him as the two countries celebrated the 10th anniversary of a comprehensive partnership in 2023. And at a meeting in April, Vietnamese Prime Minister Pham Minh Chin met Secretary Blinken, setting the stage for a historic meeting happening in just a few days. With the ASEAN summit, G20, and the U.S. visit to Vietnam all happening in a span of a few days, there will be a heck of a lot of things to unpack in our next episode. No kidding, but nevertheless, I'm looking forward to it. Last story of the day. Malaysia celebrated their 66th Independence Day last week on August 31st. After the state elections earlier this month, which saw a rise in some ethnic and religious tensions, Prime Minister Anwar emphasized the importance of unity during the celebrations of independence from British rule. With Anwar holding together a unity government less than a year old, his message is clear, especially as he proceeds from the state elections knowing that he needs to continue to gain support from Muslim Malay voters. So true. We'll see how it'll all hold going from here. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Camille, for stopping by. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Sharil Hamdan. So stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio listeners. We are both back in studio after a couple of weeks missing each other, so I'm thrilled to be joined again by co-host Alina Noor, who just landed back in D.C. yesterday. Hi, Alina. Good to be on screen with you, Greg. And today's guest is Sharil Hamdan. Sharil is joining us from Kuala Lumpur. Today's topic is going to be the recent state elections in Malaysia. Sharil, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Sharil is a former reformed government official. He was econ director in the prime minister's office under former prime minister Ismail Sabri Yaakob until last November. Now he's been reborn in what I what I can only assume is a more fun career as a podcaster alongside a former MP Kyrie Jabaluddin. Together they co-host Kelowar Sekejap, a popular podcast in Malaysia. Sharil also runs his own advisory firm in Malaysia, and I can imagine nobody better to help us in an understandable way, you know, for the non-experts, actually make sense of why these state elections were so important or got so much so much attention. So let me set the stage a little bit for our, our listeners and then turn it over to Sharil and Alina, both of whom are far better placed to speak to the topic than I am. So on August 12th, voters in Malaysia in six states went to the polls. Three in, in the north, uh, Kedah, Kelantan, and Terengganu, both held by the current opposition coalition, Perikatan Nacional. They held on to all three of those seats, pretty dominant performances. And then in, in the other three states, all of which were held by the current ruling coalition, Pakatan Harapan and Barisat Nacional, Nagar Sembilan and Penang, the coalition held on to their two-thirds majority, right? And then the real story, I suppose, is in Selangor, the richest state in Malaysia, which has long been a PH, a Pakistan Harapan stronghold, where they held a majority, but they lost their two-thirds. And whereas I understand it, in particular, BN, the coalition led by longtime ruling party UMNO, seems to have lost some juice. So, Shereel, what does all of that mean? It means that, at least for the moment, the federal government, the unity government at federal level, is stable and is expected to see out the term, and that's how I see it. I think even though there were a lot of disappointments in the results, especially in Selangor and some of the other states, ultimately a 3-3 draw, where ultimately was a status quo at the top line, that bodes well for stability. And I think that's the most important takeaway, at least for the unity government. However, you 
press on a few important points, uh, especially about AMNO's relevance inside the unity government. AMNO's place inside the unity government and that coalition with Pakatan Harapan led by Prime Minister Anwar, their role was meant to pull in the native Malay support uh, for the coalition government. And evidently, they haven't been able to do so. Uh, so there's now question marks as to how the coalition government is meant to appeal to the majority community in, in Malaysia's ethnic politics. That's definitely a live question. So Sharil, you and EJ and Kian Ming broke down the numbers in a very comprehensive manner a few episodes ago, right after the elections on your podcast, Kelas Kejap. We're not going to dive into the numbers, but I think for people in Washington especially, the real challenge of understanding Malaysian politics is to try to step away from the details and the devil in the details, right? Mm-hmm. So you've just said that a lot of what the state elections in, in those six states have, have meant is a more stable unity government. But it seems that in Malaysia, there's still a lot of talk about elections. Right? There are a couple of upcoming elections, small elections in Johor. And every election, no matter how small, seems to be a barometer of the staying power of the unity government and the staying power of the prime minister. Can the recent state elections really ensure the stability if everyone keeps talking about elections? I think that's a good point, but I think it's also an indication of a new norm that we're getting used to, where both things can occur at once. And by both things, I mean heightened politics, everyday politicking, and everyday the elites talking about a potential change in government or staying power and who supports who and whether the majority community supports the current coalition government. Those questions are almost daily occurrences that can coexist with a realisation though that ultimately the numbers at parliamentary level do not favour probability of a fallen government. So those two things can occur at once. Now, as we get deeper into the term and the next general elections loom in, say, three years, three and a half years, then I think people start questioning about who will win. And I think that is perhaps the more interesting question as we get deeper into the term, where continuity of this coalition and this unity government becomes truly in question. But for the short to medium term, my sense, and I think other people have said the same, even though there's disappointments, a 3-3 results in a state elections mean that there isn't that motivation or impetus to do anything too radical. Sure, we, we can dive back into some of the details, but for the DC audience, I want to keep it top level for a few more minutes. Malaysia has been hard to track from Washington, admittedly, in recent years, right? Because it's gone. we've had five prime ministers, effectively, in five years until this most recent turn of the wheel. And... The state elections, for those who were keeping track of Malaysia, all we heard for months was that this was the big litmus test for Prime Minister Anwar's government. And then the the through line afterward is, well, nothing changed, although I guess the coalition's support in, in Selangor weakened a bit. But that's good enough, right? What, what you seem to be saying is that this is enough to make Anwar and the government confident that they're not going to you know, have to fight for survival month in and month out, as the last three governments had. Does that mean that Malaysia can maybe take a breath and actually plan out policy beyond the next month or six months, which is kind of how it's felt for a while? Absolutely, Greg. I mean, that's what we hope 
as Malaysians, we hope the government and the and the Prime Minister takes out of the state elections results. And he doesn't dwell on whatever disappointments he must have. Because, again, as we've said a couple of times even on the show, it's three all, but the details that we haven't gotten into uh, suggest that there was ample reason to feel disappointed and frustrated about his lack of support, especially among the majority community. But given that Everyone feels, everyone in the system, I think, feels that stability is something that is important. Stability is something that we can, I think, agree on for the foreseeable future. And by by that, I mean for a number of years. Then the onus is now on him and on his administration to then make use of this stability to, as as you exactly said, Greg, get out of these doldrums that maybe this country has been in simply because of the political instability, because of covid because of the you know the, the first time change in government that happened five years ago feels like a lifetime away. And if we can be honest, I think for the DC audience and for a lot of people outside Malaysia, the latest and most recent story about Malaysia that people associate with is still that four-letter word 1MDB. And we've got to move on from that. And how we move on from that is to craft your own a new narrative, a new story about our competitiveness, about how we, we're responding to the de-risking impetus and imperative that's coming out in Washington, how we figure out our response to the CHIPS Act, how do we make sure that Malaysia is hopefully part of the French shore list. So not much of this conversation is happening domestically and within politics. And I think for many of us observers who, who are keen to see these things happen, we're, hope, we're hoping that the state election results Disappointing as they may be in some detail, give comfort to the establishment, the current establishment, to talk about those things, some of which I, I just mentioned in passing. I'm usually the, the pessimist in general, but also on this show. I don't want to drag you and your optimism down, Sharil, but you know there are some realities, right? And you can tell me if I'm over-exaggerating this or if I'm imagining this and completely delusional, but... Even now, there are still cracks, right? There are latent cracks in this unity that all Malaysians, or many Malaysians at least, hope for moving forward from the state elections. And one of those signs is the fact that for we're recording this on Malaysia's National Day, by the way. And one of those signs of cracks is the fact that with some of the Brikata national states, they decided to have their own National Day logo. What does that bode for the national agenda of all those priorities that you mentioned, moving ahead together as a nation and focusing on, on what matters? At the risk of sounding like, you know, trying to excuse Malaysia's predicament, don't we all feel that it is an age of polarization anyway, globally? And this is Malaysia's, I suppose, version of it, where just intense politicking on a day-to-day level People feel entrenched in their own positions, in their own partisan positions. But what is different about Malaysia and what gives me some optimism is I think we are crying out for an overarching narrative that binds the country again. I think since maybe 2016, 2017, at the height and the fatigue from 1MDB and 2018's disappointment up to 2020, all these changes in government that we've all kind of implied as a context in, even in this conversation. There's a hope that this Prime Minister and this administration and this current configuration where elections have come and gone will be the administration and will be the era that starts giving hope again. And because there's a desire for it, one hopes there's also a a heightened level of receptiveness whenever that message comes. So 
I suppose that's a long-winded way, Elena, of saying that I'm hopeful that this Prime Minister and this administration can give that narrative of hope. And when that comes, I'm hopeful that the public, because it is so thirsty for it, will be a bit more receiving of it than maybe before. Cheryl, I, I, I want to talk a bit about UMNO and UMNO's future in Malaysian politics, because the numbers seem to be more or less stasis for the rest of the ruling coalition, right? I mean, Kedalan kept most of its seats, DAP did fine. UMNO was the real disappointment here. And if the reason for this coalition is that PH needs UMNO to compete for Malay heartland votes, and UMNO can't do that, why? And and then how and can UMNO eventually get out of this political wilderness? Or is it going, do you think, continue this kind of slide into increasing what seems like irrelevance? Yeah, so I'm obviously a slightly interested party, given that I was suspended by UMNO about six months ago, which has led me to become a podcaster and everything. All the nice things you say about me, Greg. That came from an event that you were kind enough not to mention at the start of the show. Uh, but, you know, my history and my experience with UMNO tells me and uh, that at this moment, there doesn't seem to be much hope for a revival in UMNO for as long as the leadership does not want to change, the leadership does not want to go. And for as long as the middle management in the party isn't willing to take enough risks to force that change. So that's within in-party dynamics. But I think for your audience, what's more interesting is in the event that AMNO slides into more and more irrelevance, becomes a parochial party, becomes a smaller party, and does not prove itself able to contribute to the Malay support that the Prime Minister wants it to, then how is the Prime Minister and his traditional coalition or his original coalition, Pakatan Harapan, meant to gain that support? And in my view, it goes back to my answers, even the previous one, which is there is enough of the Malay public who wants an economic narrative that is translated to actual policy that gives them hope that they can rise from this middle-income trap. I strongly believe there's enough of the Malay public who feels that way. There is, of course, that a segment of the Malay public that will be taken by identity politics. And if UMNO is not able to deliver on that front, they will go to Prikata National, they'll harden their position inside Prikata National. And maybe that segment is going to be harder to win in the short term. But there's enough, I think, that would be happy to shift support to Pakatan Harapan and to the government if they feel that there's a narrative about economic development and credibility in that front versus Prikata National. So I think that's the path that Anwar himself will have to take as opposed to almost subcontracting that effort or that KPI to Amno because Amno is clearly not going to be able to deliver for as long as things don't change. I mean, I would think that being suspended from Amno would be a badge of honour, but, you know, I'm a disinterested party. But anyway, Sharil, it seems as if you're casting this bait about the economy. So I'm going to bite and ask you about this Madani economy and the narrative that's been put out by the Prime Minister about the economy under his administration. There have been mixed reviews. I think if I read you correctly, you're hopeful, maybe a fan of the economy. Talk a little bit about what 
economy Madani means for the country and this narrative of hope that you're hoping will unite the country? Sure. I mean, I don't want to go into too much into the, the weeds of it, but I think for your audience, what's important is this is, I feel, the first document in almost a decade that outlines in some clarity where the country wants to get to in terms of its own metrics that it finds important. So, for example, how much of GDP is meant to be household income or wages, salaries, right? That's one of the seven KPIs that he's put on himself. How much female labor force participation are we targeting? And, you know, a number of other macro-level indicators and outcomes that he wants to get to, presumably within this term. There's also, obviously, not just those seven macro KPIs, but also some detail about how they intend to get there. So, for example, a clarity in committing that two of the industries that Malaysia wants to really build its capabilities on, one in petrochemicals and two in semiconductors, obviously. So those are the two examples of industries that they want to really focus on. What's now left is translating that statement of intent to actual incentive policies that would help get us to that level of economic complexity in those two areas, for example. And that's where, and this would be relevant for your audience, I really feel that part of that translating into implementable plans about the semiconductor industry will have to do with how we engage Washington on the CHIPS Act and how Malaysia intends to position itself in a positive light from that. So, in that sense, he's got the broad strokes, he's got certain level of detail. What is, for politics, what is left is how he translates that into information that's bite-sized, that people think about and imagine on a day-to-day basis. That hasn't happened. So, instead of the kind of politics that I feel his administration's been playing, going after the opposition, going after the opponents on matters to do with governance and matters to do with corruption and speaking quite openly about attacking opponents or trying to compensate for some sense of Malay reputation deficit by sometimes speaking in very philosophical, grandiose terms about Islamic values and leadership and all the rest of it. Instead of doing all of that, right, because that hasn't paid off, my push is for him to translate the Madani economic narrative, some of which I've mentioned here, down to a level that people can consume and feel invested in. If we look down the road to the next election, and maybe even beyond, are we likely to get beyond the kind of carousel of last generation leaders fighting over the top spot? Because I think one useful word to describe the last five Malaysian prime ministers might be gerontocracy. Even more so than here in the U.S., where we're likely to have the two oldest ever presidential candidates duking it out next year. And it feels like there hasn't been much space for younger voices, like yourself or Kyrie, to take over the mantle. Which, I don't know if how much that feeds into the malaise, the discontent of younger voters in the last couple of election cycles. But any sense that there's a path to break out of that? stasis and make room for folks who were born in the 70s or 80s? Yeah. I wish it would have happened earlier, for sure. My sense of optimism, again, which comes through a lot in this episode, is that perhaps Anwar will be the last prime minister or leader of his generation. 
and this will be the end of this long chapter which started from the 80s 90s and after two stints in prison he comes back and becomes prime minister and i think by the time he ends by the time he finishes whenever that is his peers would have also either fallen by the wayside politically uh, not been around anymore and you know looking at his deputy rafizi looking at the next generation of leaders in the other parties i think we are getting to a point so for example the ap's leader secretary general anthony is quite a bit younger i think he's in his 40s and that is one leader in one of the main parties that already shows an ability and a willingness to regenerate so i feel that yeah it's been a long chapter it's been a long part of the malaysia story but it probably ends with anwar's premiership but who from the next generation takes over is anybody's guess greg and as you know being younger doesn't necessarily mean being more progressive or being more dynamic sometimes it's the same thing over and again so we'll see how it goes hopefully more quality women politicians too oh for sure yeah that's something we'd like to see again i don't know if that's a given because just because you change generations don't mean you change mindsets definitely true for southeast asia maybe we'll see you back in politics in 6 years we'll see why 6 years <laughs> after your suspension oh see so elena keeps track on my suspension term greg <laughs> uh but elena's assuming that i stay on in amno and i don't know if that assumption is safe Well, I know that Cheryl and I are the same age, and I haven't even been suspended by one political party yet. He's already planning his potential return to politics. My 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 mother should be so disappointed in me. <laughs> Cheryl, just before we wrap up, we talked about the economy. What about Malaysia's foreign policy approach and the new prime minister? Not so new anymore, I guess. Sure. Like many people, like I I guess yourself just waiting for how how his trip to the US will be like he's done a few overtures and visits to China and as we spoke privately Elena there was one remark that I thought was noteworthy where he said Malaysia's Malaysia supports China's leadership which was a remark that was never said by previous prime ministers i'm not sure that it means anything more than just maybe Anwar being kind to a host when he was then in China i'm not sure whether he said it in beijing or in one of the side forums in the other towns in the other cities but he definitely said it in china i'm waiting to see how his remarks are in new york i guess when he goes over there about america and about the us i and this is the third time i'm bringing this up because i i genuinely feel this is an important part of the malaysia madani economic narrative story how he positioned the semiconductor industry is going to be huge because it's the biggest export semiconductors are the biggest export for malaysia and if we get caught out due to geopolitics due to a sense or perception that malaysia isn't a potential at least friendly partner to the us is that a price that anwar in malaysia is willing to pay you know i i heard one of your episodes before this on on southeast asia radio where supposedly malaysia's public supports more china's leadership than america or had a, had a more positive view of china versus america versus the us but that notwithstanding we have the most important industry in the country and the one that puts us on the map is inextricably linked to the west and western investors now if malaysia is willing to move away from that then something else has to take its place but why do that when you can actually build on something you've already got and in fact that's what the document says 
Now, if you're going to build on something you already got, you've got to make sure that when the industry moves from being primarily commercially driven to what it is today, as I read it, which is also geopolitically driven, then our positioning with the US has to be, I think, a bit more tactical to this front. And it's great that de-risking flows are coming to Southeast Asia, but it needs to come to Malaysia as much as it goes to Vietnam, for example. So that's a Malaysia view, as in a Malaysian citizen's view, like myself. And I, I hope that in terms of foreign policy, that becomes one of his determinant or things that he really thinks about when he goes over there and he balances the two great powers. All right. That is all we have time for this week. Shereel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So our guest this week, again, was Shereel Hamdan. I encourage you to go listen to his much better podcast with Kairi Jamaluddin, uh, Kailawar Sikajab. I am Greg Poling. Back with co-host Alina Noor, and we will speak to you in two weeks' time. See you soon. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer your questions. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Yume Lin and Ramil Mercado. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Jaffet Kitson. And I'm Camille Basmante. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.